You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being such a good God. Lord, we praise you that you gave us your son, Jesus, who died in our place. Lord, help us this day to live for you when we ask this. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. We live in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50. Ambiguity is pretty much a virtue. It's a good thing to be unclear. Sexual freedom is like the religion of our land. And you know this is the lie of our day that your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. But since the fall of Adam and Eve, the human heart has set itself in defiance against God's perfect ways. But this idolatry of sexuality is on a collision course with the gospel, as my life was on a collision course with the gospel. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, My parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values that that I can distill to three things. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. (laughs) (laughs) I had this secret that I kept hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet, and I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I'm from Chicago, and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, I'm sorry, Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. And after a year, I went home, and I broke the news to my parents, and I told them, I am gay. Devastated my mom and dad, but through that crisis, my mother came to faith, and then my father did as well. Well, I went the total opposite direction, wanted nothing to do with Christianity, I spent most of my free time at the gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Well, but I always need to pause here because I want, need to remind people that I'm not saying all gay men do drugs, nor am I saying that all gay men are promiscuous. Of course, some are, some are not. But I'm telling my story. When I tell my story, I need to be honest and tell you my whole story, including the drugs. But I also need to remind people that when you encounter Christ, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I was broke. And if I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was a threat and a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother told the dean... It's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important 
is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. You see, my mom knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than a career. But you know, the sad reality is many people in America may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And unfortunately, often, we are forcing our kids to do the same. How? Are parents putting more emphasis upon their children getting their homework done on a daily basis, getting a better grade, getting into, into a good school? All good things. Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, upon our children following Jesus? Nothing is more important than following Christ. But you know, honestly, I was not very happy about my mother and what she was saying. I mean, I felt like she wasn't on my side. She, went, she was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs. But they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to the love of Christ, and I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I told them to get out. You know, the interesting thing was, they weren't even telling me I was living in sin. I knew what they believed, but just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Christ, that was offensive to me, and I told them to leave. I didn't even give them an opportunity to call up their friends to pick them up. You see, we hear the narrative today that Christian parents cannot love their gay children. You actually have to throw the Bible away or become a progressive Christian to love their gay child. I had the exact opposite experience. My parents were not Christian. In essence, they rejected me. It wasn't until they became followers of Christ that they knew that they could do nothing other than to love me as God loved them while they were powerless, while they were still sinners, while they were even his enemies. So my dad, before he left, I kicked him out. He wanted to give me his Bible. He was all dog-eared, had notes in the margins. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. I didn't even want him to think that I actually might read it. But my dad, being persistent, left it on my kitchen counter anyway, and then walked out the door. And as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible, and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God, and nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents 
that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mom began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She spent hours every morning in her prayer closet on her knees reading the Bible crying out to God, interceding for me, for many, many others, she knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among societies despised in the Lattice Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. I remember my mom loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So you mothers out there, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. Because I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. My mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. 
Notice how Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is is in a safe place compared to before. And it called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking on the cell block. And I passed by this garbage can. And as I looked at this trash, I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My dad has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the Word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking this is the answer. I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. 
A couple of weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into her office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than 10 years to life that I was facing. But news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. Someone had written something else in the corner and it read, if you're bored, Read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Israel in rebellion, in exile, he could even have a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next, and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my idols, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing my other idols, and there was just one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. So I went to a prison chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. You know, I'm a brand new Christian, and I'm like, I don't know that much about the Bible. I need to ask someone who's studied the Bible, who's gone to cemetery, seminary. The chaplain. But to my surprise, this chaplain actually said the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. He even gave me a book explaining that view. So think about it. With much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I wanted my cake and eat it too. So I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book. And I gave it back to the chaplain. 
which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. If the chaplain says the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality, I want to see, well, where does it, is there any place where it actually blesses it, where there's any verse, any shred of evidence? So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true, right? But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But you know, after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay. It's not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, in the past, I thought that if I were to become a Christian, that I had to become heterosexual. And what does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I even thought the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation and resist, resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality is not the correct goal. And if you think about this, God never commands us be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual for I am homosexual. Instead, God says, be holy for I am holy. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the right goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of any sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience.
As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry remained the same, regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, and I told my mom and dad, I think God's calling me into ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an application to Booty Bible Institute. But there was silence under the line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into, into me to prison. I was really excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out while in prison until I got to the last page where I realized I needed references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison July of 2001. I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated Moody in 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis in 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then I had a really cool opportunity to co-author a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. So we wrote this together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote, chap she wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent to prodigal. But the best part of this whole story is how God and his power and his grace brought us all back together. As a matter of fact, I know this is, uh, you guys don't, didn't know this, but uh, the Sunday services were supposed to be the three of us sharing our story. My dad, though, three weeks ago just had a heart attack. So he's at home, so pray for my dad. He's still recovering. He's actually doing amazingly well. Um, but if you're interested, if you want to hear our family testimony, which, by the way, I would encourage you to do this, go online. You could um, go to my website, and you could hear this. But God restored our family. My, this, this book, um, Out of a Far Country, uh, there's a free eight-week discussion guide at the very end that has these questions. It's a study guide that small groups are using parents are using at home with their kids to read this story like from eight years old on up. Kids love stories. Actually, you know, most of the Bible are stories, true stories. When I say story, I'm not saying like myths. I'm, these are true stories that the Bible uses to how? Connect or communicate God's truth through story. And that was our hope. But another really cool thing is we found out that this book, our testimony is being used as a textbook in many Christian schools. Who thought that our testimony would be used as a textbook, right? I mean, well, like textbook. I mean, no one reads that. I had a teacher write to us, be like, I have the hardest time making my kids read their textbooks, but not this one. He said, I hope you realize this, mom and dads out there. Our kids are being inundated with resources on sexuality all from a non-Christian worldview. It's almost, it's pretty much being mandated now. 
beginning in pre-K. You know the worst part is? The schools don't have to tell you. And not really telling you the reason why they don't have to tell you. But here's the reason why. Because schools believe they do a better job at raising kids than parents do. You know, I really believe that the job to teach sex education should not belong in the hands of the public schools. Two of you heard that. Let me say that again. <laughs> the job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of the public schools. Amen? But it also doesn't belong in the hands of media or Hollywood. You know, I don't even think that TV in Hollywood is, is the big deal anymore. What, what are kids watching more than anything else? They're glued to these rectangles. What rectangles are they? These things. They're essentially rectangles. You got the big rectangle and then the smaller rectangle. Our kids are being glued to this. So they're, like you say, TikTok. Instagram, YouTube. What, what do we call YouTube stars? They're not called stars. What are they called? Influencers. That label is the most accurate description of what these people are doing. They're influencing a generation and many not toward Christ. If you just look at the top 100 YouTube influencers... And by the way, they have millions and millions and millions of followers. You'd be surprised at how many of them are openly LGBTQ+, and the rest are allies. They're influencing, but not toward Christ. So we need to provide these resources. We need to provide the redemptive story to our kids that, that they can use this. So parents are using this to have that, to have the real narrative, the proper narrative, the redemptive story. You know, the job to teach sexuality shouldn't belong in the hands of public schools, and actually, the primary responsibility to teach sex education shouldn't also belong in the hands of the youth pastor. Now, I do hope that in youth group, they will touch on biblical sexuality. And parents, please, don't pull your kids out. Because you might think, oh, I'm, I'm protecting them, or, or you know, maybe you think it's too early. But by doing so, what you're doing is communicating to your kid, I don't want you to learn about biblical sexuality. Instead, learn from the world. Go ahead. Get your answers from, from, from the world. And, and, you know, kids are actually not only... You know where they're learning most about sex and sexuality? Google. So who holds the main responsibility? I mean, I think youth groups should be supplemental, but not the main place. Who holds the main responsibility? Parents. Moms and dads. But is it happening? And are you equipped? Because if we think that, oh, I'm going to have that one sex talk with my kid when, you know, when they're a teenager when they're getting bombarded every day, is that enough? Even if you think you could do it once a year, is that enough? 
Parents, I want you to right now in your seats think, when was the last time I talked to my kids about sex? This month? Last six, six months? Last year? They're getting on a daily basis. But it's not just parents. You know who else? Grandparents. How many grandparents in here? Raise your hands. Any great grandparents in here? You know why I'm adding you to the list? You have too much time on your hands. (laughs) But seriously, because some of you grandparents are like, I'm busier than ever. But seriously, grandma, grandpa, think back when you were younger, when you were just a kid, when you were a teenager. How much did you as a teenager or your peers as a teenager listen to parents at that age? Maybe, grandparents, you have more of a listening ear to the grandkids than the parents do. Are you using it in a redemptive way? Are you using it to throw a lifeline to our kids that are drowning in a tsunami of misinformation? Silence is no longer an option. Amen? Amen. You know, I gave this challenge in, in rural Alabama not even near a big city. And when I finished, this older lady made a beeline toward a book table, and, and she was like, she came like, at me like this. She's like, I need 10 books. I'm like, wow, you just need, just need one. No, young man, I need 10. One for myself, nine for my grandchildren. I'm going to mail every one of them a book, and then I'm going to read it with them, and I'm going to use a study guide, and I'm going to discuss it with them. That's a grandmother that's taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have to not to give it up to the world, but actually to take it back. I think it's time we take it back. Amen? Who wants to take it back? Any fathers? Let's see. Raise your hands. Any fathers that say, you know what? It's time. I'm taking it back. But God has been, uh, you know, just through the years, he's been so gracious because he's given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. My parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God really has a sense of humor, because he brought me back to Moody, for the, where I taught for 12 years in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. But you know this issue of sexuality, what is what I believe the one thing that we're missing when it comes to sexuality? I think it has to do with identity. It has to do with how we answer this question, who am I? You know, we've all asked ourselves this question. Kids ask themselves this question. Teenagers growing up ask themselves this question. Midlife crisis is actually a crisis of identity. For some, identity is shaped by family. You know, I'm a mom. Yes, that's who you are, but is that your main and only identity? Or by friends, like the group of friends that you have, or by culture. You know, I'm an activist. Others shape their identity by work. I'm a lawyer. Or sports. You know, I'm a soccer player. Or by hobbies. I'm a gamer. Still others shape their full identity according to their desires. I am gay. Yet do these substitutes actually really define who we are or what we do 
and what we experience. And specifically, should sexuality describe who we are or something else? And you might think, well, why does it matter? Why does it matter, like, how a person defines or identifies themselves? Well, how we answer that question, who we are, shapes how we think, the choices we make, even the relationships that we build. How we answer this question, who am I, impacts how we think, and our thoughts, our actions, our influence in large part by how we answer that question. Who am I? That, close, that shows this close relationship between essence and ethics. You see, who we are, our essence, actually impacts how we live, our ethics. And the opposite is true as well. How we live, ethics, impacts who we are. If we have a flawed view of who we are, we're going to have a flawed personal ethic. And if we have a flawed personal ethic, we're going to have a flawed view of who we are. Personhood affects practice. And practice affects personhood. You see, when I identified as gay, my whole world was gay. And that impacted how I thought, how I lived, everything. All my friends were gay. I lived in an apartment complex that was 90% gay. I bought my groceries at what we nicknamed as the Gay Kroger. I worked out at a gay gym. I bought my new sports car at a gay car dealer. My bookkeeper was gay. My housekeeper was gay. Sexuality was the core of who I was. And everything and everyone around me affirmed what my flesh was saying. I am gay. You see, this issue is more than just what is right behavior and wrong behavior. If we want to engage with those, our loved ones and our friends and our neighbors who identify as gay, we need to understand that actually they do not see this as behavior. They see this as who a person is. Being gay means this is who I am. And that reveals this deeper philosophical and theological misunderstanding that actually points to our essence, the core of our being. If you have a friend who identified as gay, who identifies as lesbian, and you were to ask her or him, what do you mean when you say that? I mean, you can explain. I know what that means, but I just want to hear you articulate that, define that for yourself. What do you mean? You will not hear them say, when I say I'm gay, I mean this is what I do. They won't say that. When I say I'm lesbian, I mean this is what I feel. No. Instead, they will say, when I say this, I mean this is who I am. See, no longer being gay means this is what I'm attracted to. Doesn't mean what I desire. Doesn't mean anymore what I do. Being gay means it's who I am. Seeing this conversation around sexuality, this subtle shift from what to who has created this radically distorted understanding of personhood. And if you think about it, I don't know of any other attraction, any other feeling that we've completely made it who we are. No other feeling. 
No other behavior that we've made it who we are. I don't know of any sin. Like, when you say you're a gossiper, we don't mean that's what he does. Or we don't mean that that's who he is. We mean that's what he does. So stop it. An adulteress, that's not who she is, but what she does. A liar, that's not who he is, but what he does. And yet, gay means who a person is. Should even the capacity or the disposition to have attractions become who we are? Or should it describe how we are? See, sexuality is not who we are, it's how we are. That, that's a very important distinction. And when we make that mistake, that we make it who we are, does that ultimately distort how we think and live? You see, sexuality should not be who we are, but it is how we are. The terms heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality, it actually turns desires into personhood. It turns our experience into essence to the point where experience, meaning our attractions, our desires, our behaviors, it reigns supreme. That's the only thing that's important is how you feel and what you think. And everything else has to bow down before it. So it's no longer sola scriptura. That's what the reformers, right? That's what we believe, scripture alone. It's no longer that. Instead, you know what it is? It's sola experientia, experience alone. So if sexuality is not who we are, nor should anything else that we do or feel be who we are, then that begs the question, who am I? Who are you? Who are we? Well, that important question, who, we, who am I, is really important to wrapping our minds around this issue of sexuality. Because we can't understand human sexuality without first answering this question. Well, how do we answer that? Well, in Bible college and in seminary, how we answer this question, who am I, is actually an aspect of theology. And, and it's an aspect, a division of theology called theological anthropology. So we can't understand human sexuality without beginning with theological anthropology. Now, I know this is the part where sometimes I lose you guys because that's like, okay, that's too big of a phrase. I don't know what you're talking about. But actually, let's break it down because it's quite simple. Anthropology, you've heard that term before. Study of humanity, right? Now, if you were to go to kind of a state school or any university or graduate school and you go to the Department of Anthropology, what you'll find is, generally speaking, all these anthropologists, they begin with this one premise. There is no God. And if there's no God, then basically anthropology is just studying how humanity just developed over the centuries. So it's the kind of comparative analysis of other cultures and how just how they developed. Well, you know, when you begin with the wrong premise, you're never really going to be, be kind of be able to get to the right conclusion. Now, theological anthropology begins with the right premise that there is a God. But why is that important? Because to understand humanity, we need to begin with God. 
because he created humanity. And if God created humanity, which he did, we need to begin with God. And there's two really important truths that are part of the, that God created us. That's part of theological anthropology. Number one, every human being is created in the image of God. Genesis 1. But wouldn't it be great that, like, the Bible just ended there? Like, we're creating the image of God. Yay! We have Genesis 3 that comes. Adam and Eve. They just had to disobey God and eat of the forbidden fruit. We call that the fall. And because of the fall, what happened? That through all of creation disarray, that, that, all, that also means that all of humanity, we all sin in Adam. So we all have a sin nature. So to better understand human sexuality, we need to begin with these two important truths. We're created in the image, in the image of God, but we also are all fallen. But you might think, but... I need to know something really practical. You know, this theology is just kind of, it's just too abstract. I, I need something that's some practical steps to help my gay neighbor or to love my lesbian relative. I need something practical. Well, unfortunately, theology really has a bad rap. You know, people are like, I'm not a theologian, I'm a Christian. That misunderstands what is theology. Theology, theos, lagos, means God and truth or, or word or saying. So if you know anything about God, if you're a Christian, you need to know something about God. That makes you actually a theologian. We're all theologians. I even argue that atheists are theologians. They're just bad ones. So, so the issue isn't whether you are or not a theologian. The, other, the issue is whether you are a good one or a bad one. Well, I need something practical, you know, because theology is so impractical. No, actually, bad theology is impractical. Bad theology leads to apathy. Good theology, really robust theology that gives us a broader understanding of this, of this amazing God that loves us, that loves me and you, in spite of ourselves, that type of theology should compel us into action. That's the theology that I'm talking about. So how is good theology practical? How does beginning with theological anthropology help me to better understand and minister on this issue of sexuality? Number one, theological anthropology actually rebukes the arrogant condemner. What do I mean by that? You might know that person that's kind of really prideful and kind of looks down their nose at those gay people. You know, they're ruining our country. No, actually, it's not people that are ruining our country. It's sin that's ruining our country. Well, you know, they look down their noses, and when they do that, they're forgetting theological anthropology, that every human being is created in God's image. So regardless of anyone's age, sex, or race, regardless of whether someone is in submission to God or not, Regardless of whether they have opposite sex attractions, same sex attractions, or both, every human being is created in the image of God. Now, that's different than being a child of God. A child of God is someone who is redeemed and is reconciled to God and is adopted by their father. That's different than being created in God's image. 
Bible communicates it differently. Every human being is created in the image of God, but not every person is a child of God yet. So being created in the image of God. So when we say that every human being should be treated with dignity and respect, it's actually not because of our commitment to social justice or even human rights. It's because every human being is created in the imago Dei. Every person is endowed with inestimable value and should be treated with dignity and respect. Actually, the image of God is the only true foundation for justice. You know, people, the, I, I, I sometimes kind of grin when I hear atheists, you know, trying to fight for social justice or, or even when they fight for bullying. You know, it's like you, you see, you know, these secular schools that are like, you know, no bullying. And I almost want to say, well, why? What's, what's your reasoning? Like, if you don't believe in God, I mean, and you just, you know, why? You know, atheists, they believe in evolution, right? What, what's the foundation for evolution? Survival of the what? Fittest. Bullying. I mean, survival of the fittest is just bullying in the natural world, in the natural, you know, animal kingdom. And yet all of a sudden, they're like, no, bullying is wrong. Survival of the fittest is wrong. Why? If you really believe in evolution and believing survival of the fittest, why all of a sudden now are you rejecting and saying that's bad? We, as Christians, are the only people that can say bullying is wrong. Why? Because we're all created in the image of God. This is an indictment for Christians who mock or demonize those in the LGBTQ plus community. Hurtful actions and attitudes like that fail to honor the dignity and value of others created in the image of God. And actually, it also forsakes our responsibility as Christians to reflect the image of Christ and proclaim the good news to those who have yet to believe. I mean, should we warn people of sin? Yes. Should we warn them of the judgment to come? Yes. But how are we doing it? the founder of our school, Dwight Lyman Moody, it was often said of him that only he was qualified to preach on hell. And do you know why? Because he did it with tears. So beginning with theological anthropology, it rebukes the arrogant condemner. Second, it avoids the common incorrect diagnosis. You know, if you're not feeling well, you want to go to a doctor or a nurse to number one, get the correct diagnosis because a correct diagnosis will lead to a correct treatment. Incorrect diagnosis can lead to an incorrect treatment and even sometimes make you worse. Unfortunately, when it comes to this issue of sexuality, Christians, we have diagnosed this incorrectly. What do I mean? How many of you guys have ever heard this before? That the root cause of homosexuality are... An absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood. How many of you guys have ever heard something like that before? That unfortunately seems to be the main go-to for many Christians. Now, of course, our childhood, parenting, good or bad, can influence our children. But note I'm saying influence. And influence is not the same thing as cause. Because you can get rid of the influence... But if the root cause is still there, you're not really caring for the problem. 
Because to believe that a detrimental childhood or upbringing, bad parenting is the cause for something, the cause of our difficulties or the cause of our sin, you know what that is? That actually isn't biblical. That's Freudian. Sigmund Freud believed that. And unfortunately, sometimes Christians were more busy trying to chase after Freud than Christ. So you might ask, what is the root cause of homosexuality? What's the root cause of same-sex attraction? What's the root cause of any sin struggle? Not your childhood, but our sin nature. See, beginning with theological anthropology, we're creating God's image, yes, but we're all fallen. And why is that important? Because too often, when we try to place blame on something else, we're not really getting at the root cause. Hear this. Sin is a problem. Jesus Christ is the answer. It's not Jesus plus. Because if there was another solution, instead of sending Jesus, the Messiah, God simply would have just sent us a support group. I mean, support groups, I think, are helpful, but it's not the answer. And I know it might sound like a simple, simple kind of trite response, but it's true. Just as salvation is in Jesus alone, also is sanctification in Jesus alone. And because of our wrong diagnosis, it has left many parents in pain. Too often we heap undue guilt on parents. And you might be that mom or dad who has that wayward son or daughter. And you keep beating yourself up and thinking, what did I do wrong? Please hear me. It's not your fault. Perfect parenting never is guaranteed perfect children. Look at Adam and Eve. Didn't they have a perfect father? They did. Didn't they have a perfect environment? They did. They still rebelled. Mom or dad, what makes you think you can do better than our heavenly father? You know the job of a Christian parent actually is not to produce godly children. You might think, I thought that is, you know, I want to have godly children. Yes, I say that because that's not your job. You know why? Because you can't even actually do that. If you could do that, you'd be God. And can I tell you just a little secret? You're not God. <laughs> you know what's the job of a Christian parent? Not to produce godly children, but it's this. To simply be a godly parent. You be godly. Reflect Jesus in the life of your kids. Point people and your kids to Christ. Pray your heart out that they will follow Jesus. But then, let God be God. Because when we realize that, we realize, you know what? We just be godly ourselves. And then let the Lord God be God. Third, Beginning with theological anthropology, it actually helps us to answer the born gay question. Isn't that the big thing? People are like, well, this is just the way they are. God made them this way. Christians are even saying that. God made them this way. 
And what they're forgetting is that they're not beginning with theological anthropology. We're creating God's image, yes, but we're all fallen. We're all sinners. I hear people often say, well, I didn't choose this. Well, did anyone choose a sin nature? Like, did any of you wake up when you were three be like, mommy, mommy, I want a sin nature? No. Oh, but I didn't choose this. Did we choose a sin nature? No. We didn't choose a sin nature. We're even born with a sin nature that doesn't make sin right, does it? You know, so often I hear people say, well, you know, people are just born this way. Christians who are saying this. People who even say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't even address this. That's not right. Even though people think they're born gay, Jesus provides the answer to this. In John chapter 3, Jesus says, you must be born again. So you may think you're born an alcoholic. Jesus says, you must be born again. You may think you're born a liar. You must be born again. That is not a message just, just for the gay community. That is a message for the whole world. The old is gone. The new has come. In Christ, you're a new creation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We try to save ourselves, but we cannot. Lord, we can't even be good on our own. But you sent your son, Jesus, who did what we could not do, who died a death that we could not die, who rose again when we could not rise so that we can be reconciled to you so that we can call you Father, Abba. Lord, we thank you that it is only in Christ that we can be born again. Give us a new mind, God. Help us to realize that, yes, we're creating God's image. Yes, we're fallen. So is everyone else. But the answer is Jesus. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We love you. Help us, oh God, to love you more than life. For it is the matchless, mighty name of Jesus that we pray. And the people of God said,